that I was busy writing notes, those wonderful healings, breakthroughs. I got caught out, it's me, yeah, speaking, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> we're on. Uh, over this term, we've been uh, following Paul on his apostolic journeys, particularly his second journey. Uh, a map will come up behind me. We've now completed his second journey, hurrah! And we're now going to go on his third journey with him. He, he, he got back eventually to Antioch, his home base church, uh, via some other places, Jerusalem at the end there. And then he's going again. And we're going to pick up the story when he gets to this place, having left Antioch, his home church, Ephesus. That's where we're going today. So if you have a Bible, look up Acts chapter 19. And we're going to pick up the account of Paul in Ephesus. It will come up behind me as well. While Apollos was at Corinth, we'll come back to Apollos, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. This was his habit. We've noted this in the past. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. By the way, we now know as Christian, the church, if you like, but it was called the way back then. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, not the continent of Asia, the province of Asia, Roman province, the map's gone, but it's the, uh, the bit that we saw there, um, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Footnote says a silver coin worth about a day's wages. We're talking millions of pounds. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Who said the Bible was boring? Wow. Heavenly Father, we open ourselves again to you in your spirit and say, teach us, Lord. Show us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to receive the Holy Spirit and to continue your mission on earth, empowered by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've just got a few things to highlight by way of introduction as we enter into this passage. Firstly, what really struck me was the humility that these disciples in Ephesus showed in regard to learning about the things of the Holy Spirit. You see, they clearly, as you read the beginning of that, they lacked some understanding perhaps of the gospel. They'd lacked certainly some experience of the Holy Spirit, but they were prepared to be straightened out. They were prepared to listen and to learn and to receive of these things that Paul was talking about. Just before this passage, and you may have read it in Life Group a couple of weeks ago, we get a little background about the early Christian scene in Ephesus. See, Paul had gone to Ephesus at one point, um, but also his friends, his tent-making colleagues, we looked at them a few weeks back, Priscilla and Aquila, had ended up in Ephesus. And there they discipled a guy called Apollos. They'd noted that he was speaking well about Jesus, but they recognized that he lacked something. And they in turn had sat down with him in his home and taught him some new things. And he would receive them and he went on, built up by them. And I'm just struck that really that God does provide us with mentors, with spiritual parents, if you like. And it didn't take me long as God alerted me to that fact to, to recognize, wow, we are rich church. Many of you are those spiritual parents. You have the resource, you have the experiences to pass on to others. But sometimes I recognize for us disciples, us who need to grow and learn, we we need to sometimes ask the question. Tell me about the Holy Spirit. Can, Can you share with me stuff about spiritual warfare? Can you teach me about praying for others? for healing and for miracles. But also, you mentors, you Priscilla's and Aquila's amongst us, there's a time also for you to invite. Come, I'd love to get together with you and to share some things, to tell you a bit more about the spirit that I've discovered. I'm conscious that when talking about the Holy Spirit, tongues and prophecy and miracles and deliverance, and this passage forces us to do that, it's easy for me, for you, for all of us perhaps, to become a little defensive Ah, that wasn't my experience. Let me tell you how it's been. Oh, I didn't understand that. No, no, but let me try and shape my understanding based on what I've understood so far and my experience so far. We, we can be a little bit reticent to learn from others because we've had a wealth of experience too, but maybe it's incomplete. We've had teaching too, maybe from here, maybe from other churches, but there's been gaps. We need to be less defensive, drop the defense and receive those around us who can teach us some things. There's no second-class Christian, yet we've all got stuff to learn and to experience and to respond to in the things of God. And it takes some humility to admit it and to receive it and to grow in these things. 
And I think there are many Christians in this nation, perhaps, particularly, maybe even amongst us, that still need to bring their, their experience of God in line with the Scripture and not try and mold Scripture to match their experience. That's the first little thing that strikes me. The second one is the Holy Spirit is essential for mission. If you hadn't already got that from reading Acts up to now. I'm struck by it again. We fool ourselves if we think church growth and gospel growth is all about our performance and our programs and not the presence of God. You see, the mission in Ephesus was a great success. It doesn't take long reading around here to determine that. Many people heard the gospel. Paul preached daily in the lecture hall, and he did that for two years, we're told in verse 10, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province heard the word of the Lord. Wow, everybody heard something about the gospel in two or three years. Wow. Number two, society honored the name of Jesus. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. I long for those days again in this nation. And thirdly, it was success because Christianity spread widely. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Yes, please, Lord. And number four, it affected business and culture. Verse 23, we haven't read this. You can read this in Life Group, perhaps. Uh, Demetrius, a silversmith whose whose whole livelihood depended on the goddess of uh, Artemis or Diana, and was peddling kind of his wares in relation to that, he was, he was suddenly going out of business, as others were too, as people were turning to Christ and turning away from other idols. And he said this in verse 23, there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. It affected culture and business. These are the characteristics of revival. This is what we're longing for in our nation again. Amen. We are, aren't we? It's there. Sometimes we need to let it out. Because we've longed for it for a long time, some of us. Ah. A really helpful quote from Terry Virgo in Christianity magazine just caught my eye this month. The government cannot legislate for righteousness. We'd love it if it could work so simply. Although we might bemoan the, the rolling back of good laws. 50 years of the abortion law marked recently and others coming in. But what Terry says, it will only reflect the national morality. That's a reality. It will only reflect the national morality. Only a spiritual awakening of real magnitude can arrest the drift and provide the upcoming generation with the true challenge of the gospel. That's what we need. We need the stuff they had in Ephesus. We need this stuff. The Holy Spirit is essential for our mission, his mission on earth. This is what happened in Ephesus. It wasn't too dissimilar in some way to the, to the characteristics of our nation. Ephesus was a large commercial city, 300,000 of them on the western Mediterranean coast, modern-day Turkey. This temple I talked about was dominant, the goddess of fertility, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus, therefore, was rampant with greed, rampant with sexual immorality, rampant with occult practices. Yet through mission, the mission of God, and the Holy Spirit, this place became a fertile ground for the gospel. And the whole region was affected. It started with a dozen or so. I don't even know about the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit 
picking up the mission heart of the Apostle Paul, and they transformed that city. God can do it again. We'll do it again. And I pray we'll do it in our day, in our nation, in our time. And thirdly, I was challenged really by this church in Ephesus. I've asked myself this question. Lord, are we a spirit-filled church? We may be known as the charismatic bunch around here. Maybe we're not. I don't know. We may be the happy clappies, perhaps. But let's, compare, let's look at Ephesus at this church. And I know, as I have, I'm provoked to hunger for more, believe for more, and ask for more of the Holy Spirit in my life, in the mission that we're on in God and in the life of this church. I trust you'll join me in it. So let's look at four characteristics of being a Spirit-filled church. Number one, baptism in the Spirit. Verse six, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. See, when Paul meets these people for the first time, he asks a very wise question of them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And you know, church, as we're on mission, we're going to need to diligently discern these kind of things again and again. In our alpha, in our impact, uh, on Sunday as people come forward for prayer or, or look into just looking and alphas that we've got coming up, we need to be diligent, church. Asking maybe ourselves, maybe God, but maybe at times them to try and discern where are they up to? Are they a believer? Have they received new life in God? Have they been baptized in water? And was that after they received faith? And have they experienced the receiving of the Holy Spirit? We need to ask those questions, not to judge them, but to help best lead them and disciple them into the things of God. We're going to need to. But whether the Ephesian dozen Paul found here were already born-again Christians or not, which is strongly debated, Paul's question assumes two things. Firstly, by asking this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's therefore possible to believe in Jesus, but yet to have received the Holy Spirit, by definition of his question. In other words, it's possible to be a born-again believer of God in Christ, but yet to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. It's possible. Secondly, from the nature of his question, it's possible also to know whether or not you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't have asked the question otherwise. It wouldn't have made sense if they had no way of discerning themselves whether or not they had experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. And when you get to question, uh, verse 6, afterwards, Paul doesn't need to ask that question anymore. It was clear to him, it was clear to everyone, it was clear to them that yes, they certainly had experienced the receiving of the Holy Spirit. For they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. These seem to be, according to Acts, the normal things of Christianity when receiving the Holy Spirit. It just seems to be common then and therefore should be common today. By speaking in tongues, I won't go into it in length. It's referring really to the gift of the Holy Spirit that releases us to bring praise and prayer to God in a language we haven't learnt. It may be another human language, it may be a spiritual language. To God, releasing us to do that in the Spirit. By prophecy, in summary, really, we're talking about, again, a gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to speak on God's behalf. Speak what he has to say on his heart, his insight, his truth, and his wonders to others. At the beginning of this year, uh, I will get my water actually, God did speak to me 
uh, through prophetic words from many of you, some of you in this room, and in my own spirit, that there would be times in this calendar year where God would pour out his Holy Spirit again in fresh and dynamic ways on us as a church. I've been holding on to that all year. And I believe we've seen something of it, but I think there's still more to come from the Holy Spirit. I was particularly gripped by this verse in Acts chapter 3 where Peter's preaching. He says this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter was presenting the gospel. Repent so your sins may be wiped out. That times, plural, many, of refreshing will come from the Lord. Part of the gospel promise is not only that your sins will be wiped out, hallelujah, what grace, but that you will receive many times of refreshing from the Holy Spirit. Many times. What grace. What a wonder. What a promise. You see, being filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit is a promise, not a perhaps. We were standing on the promises of God earlier in our worship, weren't we? Here's one to stand on. Times of refreshing may come. That's why I've been forgiven. Receiving and re-receiving the Holy Spirit is rooted in God's new covenant, not in our performance. God, I believe, is as committed to building a spirit-filled church as he is continuing his mission to save the lost. He's as committed as that to that. Spirit-filled church, saving the lost. Because the two go together. I'm aware, however, that it can be difficult. We can find it not easy to receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know. There's all sorts of things going up on here. Things going on here. We can find it tricky to be released in these things, to receive the gifts of tongues and prophecy and other things. We can become frustrated. So therefore, in faith, that's why we put this weekend on, this uh, time of refreshing weekend, just to create a bit of space. Friday night, guys, on the 17th, be there. I really believe, Impactors, that God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit on you in fresh and exciting ways. These things that you've heard about are no longer going to be theory. They're going to be experienced more and more. Sunday, of course, but do make an effort to come on that Saturday, as Kevin highlighted to us. Two sessions, 10.30, again at 1 o'clock. You can come to one, you can come to both of them. Uh, it doesn't matter if you miss one. The first one's going to be more about baptism in the Spirit. The second one, a bit more about gifts in the Spirit. It doesn't really matter. But come, it's going to be in a, a familiar environment at the King's Centre. It'll be a bit squashed, I, I trust. That's okay. We know that place. We worship in that place. We can relax. Got a bit of time. Let's just receive from him that we can come for lunch as well if you want now just to kind of complete this because that's the way i am uh, uh, do i think this group were already born again christians when paul found them well if it interests you yes i do actually um, but it doesn't really take away from anything else i've been saying it doesn't really matter luke uses the same word disciples to describe them in verse one as he does later in verse nine and thirty that's one reason secondly it was paul's initial hunch that's why he asked them past tense when you believe his hunch was they were already born-again believers. Thirdly, I'm confident that Apollos was saved before Priscilla and Aquila discipled him. I know we haven't read that story today. It just comes just before chapter 19. But Luke seems to link the account of Apollos with this one that we've just read. Not only by putting the stories next to each other, but describing the fact they both come from Ephesus and they both only knew the baptism of John. 
But I do think that Apollos was saved because Priscilla and Aquila, their assessment was, this guy, he instructs in the way of the Lord. And he teaches about Jesus accurately. But Apollos, perhaps, like these other Ephesians, maybe they'd come from the same kind of background, uh, perhaps hadn't understood everything about baptism in water and hadn't understood everything about the Holy Spirit. There we go. But what it's worth. The second characteristic of a spirit-filled church is this. Extraordinary miracles. I feel God has graciously gone before me on this point with just spontaneous testimonies. Sue, from New Day, you were there, guys. How many? Wow. What healing. What healing. Extraordinary. I mean, why did Luke use the word extraordinary in front of miracles? I mean, if we need it. I mean, a miracle by definition isn't ordinary, is it? But I think we know what he means. This was the kind of jaw-dropping kind of demonstrative transformations physically in people's lives. I guess it could be the stuff like the lame walking. I'd love to see people coming out of wheelchairs, wouldn't we? The blind seeing. Lovely. Thank you, Sue, for that account. The dead being raised, hey? Extraordinary miracles. Just like the stuff Jesus did. Yeah. The church is now doing Now, Paul clearly had a significant gift in signs and wonders, but Luke is emphasizing one thing. It was God who was doing it. God who heals. God who's performing amazing miracles by his Holy Spirit. He didn't focus on Paul, the person, and he didn't really focus on the props. Though it's interesting, he mentioned them. Handkerchiefs and aprons were being touched, touched Paul, and they were healing and driving out evil spirits. Hey, anyone seen anything like that? Amazing stuff. And perhaps these props, by the way, perhaps they were just part of his tent-making gear. Because he was a tent-maker, wasn't he? We learned that. Maybe it was his kind of maybe it was overalls or the kind of sweaty cloth he had in his back pocket. Because he rushed to the Hall of Tyrannus to do his daily teaching in the siesta time. And then went back to work. He had the stuff on him. So people grabbed it off him. Stole it. And yet still, it healed people without Paul even being there. Saying anything. Absolutely outstanding. And I tell you what, just this kind of account, I mean, it just makes you kind of go, oh my, we've got so much to learn. But on another level, we should be encouraged. It reminds us miracles, you know, aren't relying on any particular formula. There's no set pattern format for miracles. So we can loosen up a bit, church. Lighten up. You feeling loose? Loosen up a little bit about these things. If we're not seeing many miracles, it's not necessarily because we've got the wrong words in the wrong order. Our method is a bit wonky. Hankies went out. Casual reading of the miracles of Jesus in the gospel or the early church in Acts reveals there's a whole variety of ways and things that people said and did that brought healing to people. You can't, you can't find a common denominator in the actions and the, ver- and the words. If there was a secret, the secret is this. Paul was constantly full of the Holy Spirit. And if you need more insight on that, then look at how Paul reflects back on his time in Ephesus. I've got a couple of quotes from Acts chapter 20, verse 19 first. I serve the Lord with great humility, Paul said, and with tears and in midst of severe testing, again in verse 31, he says, Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. 
You see, by walking consistently in the Spirit, I believe Paul had gained the Spirit's heart of compassion and love for the lost, for the hurting, for the dying, for the church. I think by walking consistently in the things of the Spirit, Paul had gained something of the character of the Holy Spirit. Humility. I mean, it takes humility to say, I've got humility and get away with it, doesn't he? But Paul seemed to manage it. He was full of servanthood. And then being spirit-filled means there will be these high moments of dramatic kingdom breakthrough as the spirit works in other people. But alongside, perhaps, the crying, the tears, the testing, the serving, the humbling work of the spirit in our own life. Perhaps the two go together. Again, come to our times of refreshing weekend. If you want to grow in the gifts of healing and miracles, if you're desperate to see more of that in the life of our church, come along. And if you're ill, you know what? The one thing we need to discern whether or not we've got this gift or to grow in it are people to pray for. I'd really encourage you. I know it's hard at times. If you're ill, still ill, please just ask for us to pray for you. On a Sunday, in life group, other settings, prayer meetings, we'd love to do that. And we'll go again and again. And if you're not healed straight away, there's no reflection on you. It's reflecting on us, okay? Third characteristic of a spirit-filled church, driving out evil spirits. We mustn't miss the end of verse 12 about these uh, remarkable miracles. They included evil spirits leaving people. So much so, the story goes on, that some non-Christians, these seven sons of a Jewish priest called Sceva, which is a tongue twister, isn't it? Seven sons of Sceva, tried to copy Paul in invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say this, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. That's what they were doing. And I guess we'll never fully understand the extent to which people's illnesses are biological, emotional, mental, and spiritual, but the biblical worldview informs us that people need delivering from evil and from evil spirits. And if you're in any doubt about that, that was just for then, not for now. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer. A sixth of the Lord's Prayer is deliver us from evil. Deliverance should be a regular part of what we're doing in the Spirit. Thankfully, we don't have to understand it to rebuke it. Okay? That's the thing with the demonic. We don't have to fully understand it to rebuke it. Be encouraged. The Holy Spirit, again, is the one delivering people. So even aprons delivered to people appear to have some success. And you're better than an apron. <laughs> just, just, take your, just wear clothes and you're all right. The Holy Spirit does the delivering, even through inanimate, dirty objects, it would appear. Even these seven sons of Sceva that weren't believers in Jesus seemed to have a little bit of success for a while until it backfired on them dramatically. And they were viciously attacked. But I think the other encouragement for us here, here is that our role in this is not complicated. It would appear that um, 
Paul probably had quite a common way of delivering people of evil spirits. So much so that these others could look on it and write, write the sentence down and go away and use it themselves. You see, deliverance like healing comes through us speaking on behalf of Jesus and not through elaborate spiritual abracadabras. Whether you say in the name of Jesus, and I tend to, I don't know why, I just tend to say that, is no more necessary than whether you're laying hands on them, anointing them with oil, speaking commands rather than prayers, claiming the blood of Jesus, or carrying a handkerchief or an apron around in your pocket. They're all biblical, and the Spirit might want you to do some of that as he prompts and guides you in it specifically, but that's not the it. They've missed it. The phrase, in the name of Jesus, was inspired by Jesus' teachings to his disciples, not least in the Great Commission, in Mark's version, chapter 16, verse 17, where he says, In my name you will drive out evil spirits, and heal the sick, and speak in tongues. The first recorded healing in Acts, when Peter says to the lame beggar, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he helped him up, and he walked. So the examples are there, and the phrase is used, but it's the truth behind the phrase which we've got to grasp, the phrase in the name of Jesus, because it summarizes something about our identity and about God's power and authority, and that's all we need to understand. If we're in Christ, if we're a believer in him, as we looked at a few weeks ago, we're in Christ. And Jesus, because he is the king of kings, not like our, you know, hamstrung monarchs of today, he has absolute authority and absolute power to carry through that authority. And because we're in him, we're speaking on his behalf. Our identity is in him, and there we, have, we are qualified because we can speak on God's behalf in these things. We have his badge of authority. And when we speak and when we act on his behalf, we're speaking on behalf of the one who's more powerful than anything in the universe. He created everything. He's holding it all together. He's overthrown all our evil enemies and he's victorious. And he will send his power, his Holy Spirit, to bring his kingdom into people's lives. And fourthly, the fourth characteristic of a spirit-filled church is getting serious about holiness. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Wow. I'm concerned about the holiness of God's church. Thank God is too. But I'm convinced that the levels of holiness in God's people are somehow directly linked to the levels of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. I think the two are kind of broadly linked together. So an outpouring of the Holy Spirit leads to a growing fear of the Lord. And that in turn drives something in us, to a desire to honor God. And that can be expressed by openly confessing our sins to one another. It can be the radical removal of the idolatrous stuff that may be on our cupboards, on our walls, in our drawers. The driver, of course, though, is the Spirit of God, not the law. 
That's why the believers had a bonfire that day. Interesting, on the 5th of November, to talk about this. A bonfire of stuff, millions of pounds worth of occult bits that they needed to get rid of. And we too do. We, we also need to. My discipleship has involved stopping listening to certain music. My discipleship involved destroying certain photographs. My discipleship has involved ending certain romantic relationships in my past. My discipleship has involved confessing my sin to somebody. My discipleship has even involved cutting my long hair, which I once had. I don't know. Not because out of law, but out of conviction of the Spirit. And what the Spirit was showing me was I'd put something of my identity in these things, but my identity now was in Christ. And the more I was Spirit-filled, the more I could see my identity was Him. I knew, I am a Father, Jesus, my brother, the Spirit alongside me. And the more there was no room for anything else for me to invest my identity in. The, the more the Holy Spirit filled me in my life, the more I realized that my security was fully in him and should never be in anything else. So I got rid of stuff that would remind me of security that I was putting my life in. We need to destroy it when it's helpful. I want to be in a church where the presence of God is so strong that people voluntarily put their lives right with him. Can't force people to burn scrolls or whatever the modern equivalent is. But we can, church, be increasingly filled with the Spirit ourselves, and it will affect those around us. I think it already does to some extent. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit, hence the word Holy Spirit, so the holiness of God will not jump. And people won't be able to be around us even without us saying anything, without the challenge of that coming to them. And there's an opportunity for them to confess and repent and turn and make their lives good before God. But some, some won't, and we see some of that, and that's why they drift away. I don't want them to drift away. I want them to hear it again and again and again, but they, they're too uncomfortable. But some do, and often they do, respond and grow as a result. So come, again, to our times of refreshing sessions, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the holiness of this church. Because if we're more full of him, there's more of that around. God has many times a refreshing for his children and for this church, not only for our benefit, but also for the successful continuation of his mission on earth. So as we end, I've just got two groups really to focus on. One group of questions may apply to some people. One group of questions may apply to another. Group number one, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit recently? Do you speak in tongues? Do you prophesy? Have you seen people healed and miracles break out and demons flee? Is your prayer life increasingly, Lord, I want more of your Holy Spirit in my life on mission and in the life of this church? That's one group of people. Might want to come forward in a minute. We'll pray with you. The second group of people, might be, these might be relevant. Do you need to get your life right before God? Do you need a healing? Do you need a miracle? Do you need to be freed from spiritual oppression? I'm going to invite the band back up. I'm going to hand over to Kevin. But just as those 
questions resonate around your mind. Uh, I think we're going to have an opportunity, even now, you don't have to wait two weeks to receive some things in the Holy Spirit.